there's a, a peace and a solace to archery hunting that you don't get with a rifle. Um, there's an intimacy with the game that you don't get with a rifle. You know, we rarely see the animal before we call it within shooting range, which I think is exciting because you never know what you're going to get. The reason why we get the elk to bugle is because we then become that bull that's coming in to take that guy's cows. You know, talking about you know elk calling in general, I think the majority of the population overcomplicate it. It's really not a language like we want to understand a language. A lot of people will go out looking for elk, and one reason why we cover a lot of ground is because we're not we're not truly hunting elk until we find the elk. They go from being a dominant animal in the woods to being a scared little prey animal when they smell human. You spend any time in the elk woods and you listen to these animals, and I don't care if you're hunting them or not, just go be around them and listen to what they're like. They're not quiet animals. They're not. You're never going to be an expert at it, essentially. You may think you're good. There's always something else to learn and room for improvement for everything. This is uh, Corey and Shannon from Anger Spike Productions. And you're listening to Living Country in the City. Y'all ready for your dose of flyover state spirit? Straight from the concrete jungle? Well, put down your latte and pull on your boots. It's time for Living Country in the City. Here we are, another episode of Living Country in the City, coming at you from the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo out here in Salt Lake City. Uh, At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hanging out here with the gentleman from Angry Spike. Is it Productions? Yep. Uh, Angry Spike Productions. ASP. Uh, want to say a big thank you to Sawyer for uh, being a sponsor of the podcast. Check them out, Sawyer Products. Um, Gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, for hopping on the show with me today. Um, you know, one thing I always like to start out with a little bit, you know, this, this podcast is for people that may not as, be as familiar with just all the different names and people in the outdoors. So maybe uh, just each of you individually a quick background on kind of how you got your start into hunting and what, what really prompted you to, to get into hunting. Right. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'm Shannon. Um, growing up, my dad was a hunter. So I grew up uh, doing it, you know, rabbit hunting, squirrel hunting, everything. Um, From there, it just morphed into a big game. Um, Wanted to be more challenged, so I started archery hunting back in the uh, early 90s. And specifically with elk, which is kind of my forte, um, I I learned that they communicated. Wanted to understand that. Started uh, learning how to call. And in that process, uh, just got hooked. So that interaction is what I'm all about out there, you know. Being successful is is a product of just the ability to get out there and enjoy it, you know, be a part of that environment. So, yeah, I mean, it's all I think about for the most part. Awesome. 
Uh, I'm Corey. Uh, I've been helping Shannon now for the last probably six years or something with Anger Spike Productions. I started out when I was about 12 years old, personally hunting, uh, again, influenced by my father, who was a forester, spent all of his days on uh, timberland looking at animals, really. I mean, he says he's looking at trees, but I think he was really looking at animals. And uh, so I, I'd learned from a very young age kind of what, what hunting was all about. Um, started rifle hunting at 12 and then eventually evolved into shooting black powder uh, kind of in my late teens and then my, into my, through my 20s and then eventually evolved into archery. It's just kind of the natural progression that Shannon talked about, wanting to continuously challenge yourself and kind of uh, get more in touch with the traditional style of what hunting really is about. Um, I think over time you, you want those challenges and as you become, it becomes more ingrained in who you are, that back to tradition kind of grows inside of you to want to be closer to that. So it was, uh, it was a very good transition into archery and now here we are uh, hanging out at the Conservation Expo with guys like yourself and talking <laughs> about hunting and, and uh, a bunch of like-minded people hanging out and doing it. So it's been great. It's been a long journey for, uh, for both of us, but we're, uh, we're enjoying it. If you guys can hear the uh, the announcement, poor uh, poor lost uh, lost child. Yeah, if you Get know him. if you know Easton, Get him. call in, please. They're looking for. Please, uh, we'll post this up on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so um, so you guys both started in on on bow hunting. Uh, do you do you really ever pick up a rifle anymore these days? You know, rifle hunting, the adrenaline rush is very short. The uh, if you call it the. Um, and the build-up and anticipation. Yeah, the, uh, the top of it, really. You know, that it, it's very short. You pull the trigger, it's over. Uh, archery hunting, it's a very long process, right? So just seeing the animal is the beginning. Um, so you're, it's just so intimate. Um, so that's the direction I, I, I took it, and then learning how to call, and it just became more and more uh, intimate with the animals. Yeah. I, I haven't picked up a, a rifle since... Um, I basically started black powder hunting, and then when we went into, you know, when I transitioned into archery hunting, it's it's become further and further away from anything that I personally want to do uh, because I like the additional challenge. You know, there's a, a piece in a solace to archery hunting that you don't get with a rifle. Um, there's an intimacy with the game that you don't get with a rifle, and you have to wear hunter's orange, and I despise it. So um, <laughs> that's probably the biggest reason, um, but... But in reality, like, you know, if there was an opportunity for a specific hunt where I had to use a rifle, I wouldn't be opposed. I am not opposed to rifle hunting. I have just personally chosen yeah. Yeah. to evolve myself into being an archery hunter, um, specifically, you know, elk. So <laughs> These two, my, my coworkers, seem to manage. They oh. manage to walk by every time yeah, I'm doing a podcast. Right. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. You got good footage then. Oh, nice. Exactly. Excellent. Exactly. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh, he's actually the one that got me started in, in the oh, backcountry nice. hunting. Oh, right so. on. Very but, cool. Yeah. No, I, I, it's funny. Uh, rifles and, and guns were what got me interested in hunting. You know, I, I, I started off, you know, I went to the, I had zero interest in it, whatever. I mean, wasn't opposed to it. I was like, cool. Good for you. That's pretty, pretty manly. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, um, but, you know, I went, it was like a bachelor party. We went to Vegas, and, you know, we did the gun store thing and shot all the guns. I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. You know, I could, I could get into shooting guns. And so I picked some up. I started uh, getting involved with shooting long-range rifle yeah. and started teaching, actually. I was like, you know what? I, I want to, like, with anything I do, I always want there to be, like, a purpose behind it. I'm not good at just doing something for the sake of doing it. So, like, whether it's working out, um, 
whether it's uh, shooting a gun, whatever it is, I need a reason behind it. So I'm like, punching paper's all well and good, but I want to sit down and really enjoy enjoy some a reason for it. And uh, and so I was like, I need to I need to start learning about this hunting thing. So I started, you know, following people on Twitter and Facebook and 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 looking up these hunters, you know, uh, and started getting into it and then I found out about bow hunting and I'm like you know what I want to go check this out I want to go see what this thing's about maybe go price out some bows and they saw a sucker when they I walked in that Bass Pro Shop they saw a sucker from a mile away they sent they sent the pretty blonde sales girl over to me before I knew it, I was six hundred dollars poorer and walking out with a brand new bow Uh, but you know I don't regret (laughs) it to this day no archery itself is a um, you're never going to be an expert at it essentially you may think you're good there's always something else to learn and room for improvement for everything so and that's the same thing with archery hunting you know shooting the bow is a a part of it getting equipped and uh, you know preparing yourself to go out there for seven eight ten days whatever it may be it it becomes a lifestyle be honest with you you know more than just a hobby absolutely and it's i mean it's something i think a lot of that has to do with the fact where to some extent you can you can let your rifle gather dust for 90 percent of the year and pick it up just before right. hunting season zero it in kind of knock some of the rust off and and for the most part you're good to go right. uh something with archery you know i feel like if i don't go shoot for a week i yeah. feel like i'm i'm losing skill <laughs> like it's it's a it's a skill you have to upkeep and it it mm-hmm. does it turns into a lifestyle and a, i mean yeah and it, if you're not proficient in it you have to keep practicing Right. I mean, there's people who have built a brand around what Arrows 365. I mean, you guys like Cam Haynes, they shoot every day. Um, yeah. You know, and it, and you become so it becomes so ingrained in you that it's just it's natural muscle memory. Doesn't mean that you can't lay off it for a month and come back and not have any problems. You probably don't. But if you don't shoot, if you only pick up a bow during the season, you know, you're doing yourself and the animals a disservice, really, because you you need to be as prepared as you possibly can to kill an animal animal as quickly and as ethically as you possibly could with a bow so and and that takes practice you know and it's something that i need to do more of i think a lot of people need to do more of is just continue to shoot and hone their craft you know i go out and shoot with him and he doesn't shoot nearly as much anymore as he used to but he spent years and years and years as a tar- tournament archer right. shoot competitive and so, so i get frustrated because he's just like oh this is easy you know and i watch <laughs> him, he just makes it look like it's nothing um but i haven't built to that i don't have yeah. i'm not that expert with ten thousand hours yet right the ten thousand right. hour rule applies to certain people and not to others and i haven't got there so um i admire that because i want to be probably i'm not far from where you're at you want to <laughs> shoot all the time because you're just getting into it right? yeah. Yeah. So, well it's fun too and it's, it's like it's one of those things it's like okay this is not a chore to practice it's therapy it is. No, it's and a, that's you know, why i say the goal do. to to perfection is essentially unachievable mm-hmm. but you can get really close yep my goal that keeps you going back all that. It's just no different than calling elk in, yep. right? You're never going to every situation's not going to work out exactly how you want, but when it does work out exactly how you want, it keeps you going back the next time. It doesn't, you know, it it can. So the more effort you put into it, the more you analyze it, the more you think you can control it, the more you want to do it. Yeah, so. absolutely. It's no different than somebody who wants to hone their skills in golf, right? Driving range, putting green, chipping. You know, that's they do the same thing. We did the same thing. You know, twenty yards, forty yards, shooting from a knee, shooting from a seated position. You know, standing, shooting with obstacles. Same thing. 
you know. Well, and that's what it is too. Like you're saying, they, it, there's never a point where you get to perfection no. because there's always some other situation to prepare for as well. To where, yeah, okay, you may be as close as you can get to perfection from 30 yards. You're just, you know, you're just robbing hunting those arrows. You're keyholing them, whatever it is. But then, Step you know, back to 40. How, yeah, okay, the now you got to get back changes. to 40. You got to get right. back to 50. You got to right. back. So, okay, you're good at those ranges. Well, you know, what happens when you have to shoot downhill? What happens when. When you've just got a, a little rock and a tuft of grass between you and that right. you and that bull, and you've got to figure out how to draw while you're like squatting down, and 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 then pop up over and shoot from your knees. What you know? Yeah. There's yeah. so many in, infinite number of situations. The slow draw, for. holding your shot. You know, at full draw, 12 mile an hour sidewind on a 60 yard shot versus a 20 <laughs> yard shot with no wind. You know, it's like there's bull so many variables. Something you know, there's yeah. always an element oh, yeah. that you can't control that makes that perfection just out of out of reach. And it's no different than and what we specialize in is Roosevelt elk hunting on the Oregon and Washington coast. And being able to call them in and the strategy that I've developed over the years, all, you know, it was all learned based off of failure. You know, I, I would try something, it would fail. I would learn from it. I would try something, it would fail. I would learn from it. And then pretty soon you establish this strategy that has a higher percent success rate than what you were previously doing. So, yeah. So that that brings up, uh, tell me a little bit about Angry Spike. Yeah, Angry Spike Productions, uh, about 12 years ago, I got a, a little hand handheld camcorder uh, for Christmas. Um, and I was calling elk in at the time, but my friends, family just didn't believe me. They said, you know, because <laughs> traditionally Roosevelt's everybody, I, you know, growing up, I was told, nah, you can't call them in. They just don't bugle like that. Not vocal, uh, you not You just aggressive. need to sneak up on them and, and, and shoot them whenever they're not looking. Well... You know, these are a uh, vocal animal. They're a social creature. So I built on that. And I, I got that camera. I started filming it, and I started showing people. And then I edited a VHS tape, smack dab elk hunting. And that was the first one I ever did. And, I, so and I, I gave it to all my friends and family. And then they were like, you know, they couldn't stop talking about it. So from there, uh, three other friends of mine got together, and we started filming a little bit more on the professional side. We would dedicate a camera guy, you know. And... Uh, Put it together, made the first video in 2006. It was labeled season 2005, the previous season. And uh, it was a huge hit, huge hit. You know, the DVD at the time was a big thing. And, uh, yeah, I could sell my product in the stores and did seminars, all kinds of stuff. And I did it like that for, well, here, we just went to the, about three years ago, the social mm -hmm. media and, and all that part of it. Um, and DVDs kind of dropped off, so now it's more the YouTube channel and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. So, you know, and it just morphed and developed into what it is today. Um, so, I mean, talking about elk, you you know, you say you specialize in rosies, but yeah. I mean, in, in general, as far as we know, there's there was four kind of general breeds of elk. There's three at one time. Th at one time, and there's three right. now left in in the U.S. That's our one claim to fame in California. We got the two elk. The still. But generally, in, in uh, you know, I mean, talk about an insane conservation story. Like, right. there was, what, what, 12 left, and then they uh, babied them until, and, and now there's enough to where, I mean, don't get me wrong, I doubt I'm ever getting a Thule tag in my right. lifetime, but, uh, you know, there's enough to there's where. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity, really and they could yeah. be hunted, and they're, they're thriving, and it's right. an amazing thing. Um, but so generally, when you're talking about elk, most people are either talking about Rocky Mountain elk yep. or Roosevelt elk. 
So what, uh, I mean, uh, talking about the differences between those, what, for, for a layman, for a newbie, what, what would you say are, like, the main differences? Uh, well, I've hunted both extensively, Roosevelt being my, uh, you know, my specialty since I, I grew up and live in that environment. Um, the environment is the biggest difference. An elk is an elk, um, and I, my strategy for hunting either one doesn't change. It's the same. It's just my environment changes, so I have to slightly adapt to each situation. Um, but, yeah, they're very, you know, when a bull's with cows, he's very protective. He's very territorial. He's going to do the same thing that you would do if somebody came into your house and wanted to round up your, you know, <laughs> your wife, your and, wife and girlfriend and what, whatnot. <laughs> yeah, your concubine, cool. right. your whole harem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I think, I mean, for people that don't know, the physical characteristic differences are, are typically Roosevelt elk are much bigger bodied. Uh, from you know, with with respects to a mature Roosevelt and smaller antlered than what you would get with a Rocky Mountain elk, they're going to be much larger antlered and and smaller bodied. Um, what you see sometimes is a perception difference based on the size of the body being smaller on a Rocky. They make the antlers look bigger because um, there are Roosevelt elk out there that will push 400 inches. Uh, and there's several 350 plus inch Roosevelt that get killed, you know, either annually or at, you know. But your typical Roosevelt elk, you know, you'll see a, a mature Roosevelt will be in the 240 to, you know, 300 on average range. Um, and really that's it from a characteristic standpoint that the Rosies just tend to be bigger bodied and, and normally smaller antlers. But like Shannon said, the So the main terrain. difference, though, is is more the geographical terrain. Where are you going to find them? Correct. The terrain, the, yep. the, the, the regions they're in right. and the vegetation. Mm-hmm. So what, what would be the differences in between those terrains and vegetation compared to, like, a Rocky versus a Roosevelt? Yeah, Roosevelt live in a rainforest. It's uh, thick, brushy. Uh, you can't see 20 yards in front of you. Um, on the other side of the mountains, you got nice, wide-open meadows, and um, you can see them a lot farther than they're concerned about you. Yeah, sparser trees, less, right. less understory in the forests, you know, less vegetation down low. Um, the trees are more sporadic. They're fighting for their... They have less, less of a competition for sun over there because it's sunny a lot more um, than on the west side. So it's very dense. So. Dense, wet. Um, yeah, you know, we rarely see the animal before we call it within shooting range, which I think is exciting because you never know what you're going to get, right? And then a lot of times on the east side, you already know your target. Mm-hmm. And so then you're trying to kill that specific animal. Um, but Roosevelt, you know, they live everywhere. They're all over the uh, west side of Oregon and Washington. Um, and in this majority state and public lands, the opportunity is there for everybody. Um, if, if you can just adapt to what you need to adapt to to be successful for them. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com So, you know, most of what I've focused on, most of the people I've I've talked with, I know a few of them have hunted Rosies. I've talked with Cody Rich before, and, you know, he's... uh, He's uh, moved away from the Pacific Northwest right. now to, uh, he's abandoned you guys. <laughs> but uh, oh, We kicked him out. Uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right, get out of here. Um, go to Montana. But, you know, I've talked to, I've talked to a couple of guys that have, have done some of that, that style of hunting, but generally it's focused more on, uh, 
on hunting those Rocky Mountain elk. And, you know, I know you said your strategy, 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 strategy doesn't change, doesn't change too much. Uh, But what, what differences would you see in as far as methods or uh, like how, how the the average guy would be hunting a Rocky Mountain elk? Say they come, they come out and they want to do a rosy, rosy hunt. Uh, yeah, so if you're a predominantly a, a Rocky Mountain hunter, like where we are here in Utah, um, and you want to go hunt the Oregon or Washington coast, I look for vast areas that have no clear cuts because I want an animal that's really unmolested by people. And, and when you have an opening in the middle of a f- rainforest, it gets a lot of attention. And, and um, animals, typically you're the average age of that animal around there is going to be a little bit lower. So I like to focus on more mature, more dominant bulls. So I look for areas that uh, really have no roads or access. Uh, it's, it's a lot of work getting in there. It's a lot more work getting them out. But, um, yeah, I mean, it can be overwhelming if you're looking at it from a satellite imagery because you're not going to see <laughs> a meadow. You're not going to see a wallow. You're not going to see a pond or anything like that. It's going to key in on where elk are. Quite honestly, on the coast, they could be anywhere and everywhere. Yeah, they don't have different – their feeding areas and their bedding areas really ultimately kind of are one and the same. They don't travel far for food. I mean, they live in a buffet of vegetation, so they literally can eat and sleep in relatively close proximity to the same spot. So it's not like over here where you are looking for those open spots in those meadows because the vegetation's not growing under the trees. Otherwise, in right. the on the Pacific Northwest, you got enough – it's everywhere. Moisture yeah. and everything right. to where it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's under everywhere. the canopy. Yeah, so. they, they, yeah. Bra- they graze much more. in The Rocky Mountain elk will graze much more in open meadows. Um, there's a lot less vegetation for them to browse on. In the northwest, there's a lot of stuff where they can brow- browse on vegetation that's literally at face level. Right. Um, grasses are on the ground, but everything else is at face level, so it's very easy for them to get food from all the foliage that's around. So here, I mean, obviously you're looking you're – gonna. they might – feed in, a, in an opening but they're going to go bed somewhere else and that somewhere else might be one two three miles away to the nearest north slope with timber on it mm-hmm. because that's the only place that they have cover so you talked a little bit about you know the general impression of roosevelt elk is they don't talk that's i've even i've even i've heard that You've before heard that. and uh you know i've i'm very unfamiliar with this so so what uh what, I guess, where does that come from? Like, why, why is that impression out there? I think because historically people have focused around the openings of clear cuts. Elk are typically nervous in the open. So when you're looking at a herd feeding and you bugle or cow call at them when they're out in the open, well, they're uncomfortable already. And what that typically does is it pushes them to the edge. And so that, I think, was interpreted as they're running away from you. Which is not necessarily true. They just want to be in a safe, comfortable place. So that's why I take that whole clear-cut opening aspect out of it. And when I focus on the animals, they're in the thick, they're in the cover, they're comfortable, and they're confident. And I'm another elk to them. So when I enter their territory, that challenge is accepted instead of them pushing off and getting to a safe place. Yeah, and elk density has a lot to do with it, too. I mean, we hunt in areas where the elk are far more scattered out in little pockets. You don't have big herds with multiple bulls, a lot of cows, satellites poking in and out. When you get scenarios like that, you get a lot of elk bugling at each other, 
establishing dominance, you know, locations of, hey, I'm over here, you know, you stay over there kind of scenario. Well, we are. The reason why we get the elk to bugle is because we then become that bull that's coming in to take that guy's cows. But they don't bugle from canyon to canyon at each other all that much. So they they might be interpreted as not being vocal because they don't have a reason to call. They don't get down there when they've got, you know, 10, 15 cows in one canyon by themselves and bugle just to bugle. They don't have to. So um, And they're harder to hear. Than they are. Because you got so much dense thick cover, it just yeah. knocks the sound down. So if you're just out walking around, your odds of hearing an elk bugle on the Oregon coast are pretty slim. Unless, unless we're there. in a high-density area, which we're not. Yeah. Unless we're there. Right? So <laughs> it, it generally seems like almost the, the, the general theme with Roosevelt is everything's closer, everything's yeah. a lot lot more compressed and you gotta you've just gotta be in there a lot more do you end up covering a lot more ground would you say uh Um, yeah yeah we cover tons of ground to find the bulls that we want to hunt now mm -hmm. i'm a little bit more selective than than most people because i'm targeting the mature dominant bulls uh, you know seven eight ten year old animals um i just find a lot of it's, it's so challenging to me to get an animal that's evaded other people for 10 years, right? It's just mm-hmm. very rewarding that I can get in there and get in his face and get an answer and uh, call him in into a shot where we can, we can get a lethal shot on him. So, um, But that's kind of my niche. Um, so now you're talking about... Uh, well, I, let me back oh, no, up there because I do have one thing, and, and it's, it's something that I learned from Shannon, too, is in, in his approach, and it's a lot of people will go out looking for elk. And one reason why we cover a lot of ground is because we're, we're, not, we're not truly hunting elk until we find right. the elk. We are hunting indications of elk, and that generally comes in the form of rubs on trees, which will give us an idea of the, the size and age class of that elk. And a lot of people don't understand how to read the signs that they leave you. But um, he has a saying that, you know, a big elk can make small rubs on a tree, but a small elk cannot make a big rub. So we're looking for rubs that, you know, and here you've seen me standing next to you. I'm 6'3". I've got to reach at about eight and a half feet. I, I'm kind of a litmus test of where things... <laughs> she's trying to bugle. Uh, a litmus test of where things really separate out from a big elk to a small elk. You know, if you've got a, a bull that's only rubbing seven feet, we might bugle at him and try to get his, him to respond and see what he is. Just because, right, you never know that big elk might have made a seven-foot rub because he was just being lazy. But when we find a nine-foot rub, we will literally pound that area out until yeah, we've we'll either yeah, until we either found out that mm-hmm. he's just not there, he's moved on, or we kill him. Was, and that, that's uh, why we cover so much ground is because we're constantly looking for the sign. those rubs, for, those, for that sign. Yeah, And, and you finding can only, the correct sign that you're looking yep. for as well. Yep. And they leave a lot more. They leave a lot less sign than you would. I mean, we're not looking for tracks because the tracks don't necessarily tell you anything except for yes, they've been there. But yeah. a rub, tell an active rub, will tell you that there is a bull in that in that general vicinity. And I uh, that was that was one thing I, I noticed when I I went on my first elk hunt last September and uh, was ultimately unsuccessful. And so it's a whole long story. Episode thirty eight of the podcast explains the whole thing. But uh, I remember when I first got in. Uh, I was going through this just gnarly, dense area, deadfall everywhere, and I was like, and I remember I finally saw my first rubs that I've ever seen, and that was one thing I remembered somebody telling me. I, I heard it somewhere. Somebody told it to me was like, okay, it makes sense. You know, you can you can tell a big bull if there's a big rub, mm-hmm. and uh, you know if you can't if you can't reach that rub, you're in a good spot. And if you can't bend the tree over, or he can't bend the tree over, that's an accurate representation of the top of his horns. 
mm-hmm. where he's hitting that. And you can almost figure out exactly how tall his, his main beam is. At least we can for Roosevelt. Yeah. You know, they stand about this tall, and their head's about this tall. When they tip their head forward, you got about 40 inches of, of beam to get it nine feet tall. So, yeah, it's uh, – you spend a lot of time out there. You figure all that out. Yeah, and I remember. I remember seeing those rubs, and that was the one thing I remember. And they were, they had stripped those trees, man. They had stripped them clean, oh, yeah. and I could not even come close to touching them. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I, I got real excited. I got real excited when I see those. But then I realized uh, after a snowstorm blew in that everything had decided. Yeah, we're gonna go about uh, two thousand feet lower and leave you to deal with the snow. But that's a whole that different makes story. Ch- makes it challenging. <laughs> yep. So uh, rubs are the main thing. Uh, is there any other sign? Any uh, what else? What else are you guys looking for? Maybe once you find a good rub, what's what's the process after that? Well, so elk hunting in general, I've broken down into certain segments. I realized early on that I, I couldn't just become a better elk hunter. I had to narrow it down and focus on little things. So I had to learn where elk live, what they, the habitat at which they like and thrive in. So the hardest thing, in my opinion, about elk hunting is finding elk and so once i figured out where elk like to live you know they need basic necessities they need food they need water they need cover so you find the area that has all of that you'll find sign and when you start finding sign specifically we're looking for bulls we find the bull sign once we find the bull sign now i know he's there i know he lives there and roosevelt's in in relation to rockies are somewhat homey Right, they they don't have as big a radius. They don't, you know, they're uh, not going to range nearly right, as far. They don't get near as far. They don't have to. They got a lot, they got everything they need relatively close. So, what I will do once I find a rub is I will analyze, be it from topographical maps or GPSs or satellite imagery. I will just analyze the entire area and figure out little pockets and places where they want, you know, comfortable places. When we're hunting in September, it's typically warm. Elk are lazy, just like you and me. They want to be <laughs> down in the cool country. places. You know, and I prefer to hunt those kind of days because the elk become more predictable. Um, I'll, I'll find those on a map or I'll find them on uh, aerial photography, and I will just I'll go pick them apart. Every one of them I'll hit. And if I find more sign in that area, then I know he spends more time there. Uh, if I get an answer, obviously, now I know exactly where he is, which is my ultimate goal. <laughs> we are right in the middle of, right. uh, we're right by the, the food table, so we're right in the middle of Screaming yeah, Child Central. That's, and that's picnic table over there. It's nothing but kids and <laughs> families, and well, they, brought the, they brought their own lunch. They're brown bagging it. There we go. I mean, yeah. that's a smart way to do it. I've already spent. I don't even. I think I've probably spent more on food here food. than I have yeah. on yep. on my plane ticket out. Something so. we bought so far as food. <laughs> but yeah, so I broke you know elk hunting down in those different segments. Um, once I find the bull, now I got I got to get him to answer me. So I've figured out ways to get better responses. You know, and bark at him and bugle hard and bugle twice. The first time he may be, you know, sniffing a cow or chewing his cut or just not paying attention, he'll turn his head and look. And then I'll bugle again. I usually get that response I'm looking for. So once I get an answer, now I have to evaluate how I'm going to get to him, pay attention to wind direction, uh, the train, because I want the easiest path to him as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to get there as fast as I can possibly get there. And I want to approach him. To build his anxiety, it's part of my calling sequence that that my noise is coming to him is actually part of the challenge. 
So I go straight at him as, as much as I can. And once I get in close, I just simply challenge his right to breed, which is every one of our purpose <laughs> here, right? Nobody's going to turn down that fight. I, I like that phrasing. I've, I've heard I've heard that that same concept, like, yeah. you know, illustrate a lot of different ways, but I, that's the first time I've heard it put that way. You're challenging his right to breed. Right. Um, I like that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that for sure. Right. I mean, if he was a man, it'd be challenging his manhood. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you're going to defend that. So... We- and I tell you what, the, our, our percentage of when we get an answer to when we, we get a shot is astronomically high in, in comparison to most other people. And it's partly because we selectively hunt the animals at which we're hunting. We're hunting the dominant, mature bull that has not lost a fight in many seasons. So it's kind of skewed for that. But he's not going to be as tentative. Uh, no, t- we're not. No. Well, we're, I don't cow call because... He has no interest in another cow. He's got six, seven, eight of them on his own. That cows get nervous. They're competitive just like bulls. So cow calling for me is is very last resort. And it rarely do I have to, you know, go that far back. Um, yeah, I go in, I challenge his right to breed, and nine times out of ten he comes just stomping right in. So <laughs> now I have to figure out how I'm going to kill it. We approach them just like another elk would approach because that's exactly. the thing. If you start cow calling, another cow call is not coming in there aggressively to fight a bull, right? So we leave that out, and when we when we go in, it's it's very it's very meticulous in the way of being exactly like what another elk would be. So it, obviously playing the wind, right? That's a huge factor. That elk's going to play the wind on that other elk, so we're going to do the same thing. It's um, you know we make it we make a lot of noise. I mean, we go in, grab branches on the way down, snapping stuff breaking big sticks because that's what they do if you spend any time in the elk woods and you listen to these animals and i don't care if you're hunting them or not just go be around them and listen to what they're like they're not quiet animals they're not it's like walking you know if you had a herd of horses running through the tree the mm-hmm. timber it'd be the same way they, they're not trying to be quiet so um i think early on as rifle hunters we were taught to try to be quiet because it's all sneaking in spotting stock and getting as close as you can without making any noise because you don't want them to know you're there it's a complete re- role reversal in this scenario you want them to know that you're there yeah. you're bugling at them you're barking at them you're you coming in like a predator no you, you don't because that's what they're scared of sneaky things so, or, or predators yeah. yeah so we we come in aggressively just like an elk would um, and that that builds that anxiety, like Shannon was saying, in him. And next thing you know, he's coming to meet you because he's left his cows where they won't, where they are to come protect them, so that you never even see them. So it's uh, he's he's created a system that is, if you follow it literally to a T, your your success rates go through the roof. Um, maybe not necessarily on your kills, because then it becomes back to what we talked about earlier with the shot. You still have to be able to shoot. And a lot of guys at that point in time, they don't remember what happens yep. because they get to their, they, they get that anxiety builds in them as well, and everything just kind of goes blank. Um, but if but at least having an opportunity at a shot um, is probably at least ninety to a hundred percent of the time when we locate a bull and we drop in on one. Yeah, hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. All right. 
Yeah. You know, talking about you know elk calling in general, I think the majority of the population overcomplicate it. It's really not a language like we want to understand a language. It's, it's just not that complicated, at least the bull communication. It's very primitive. I think with the same sounds, they can say a lot of different things. And it has more to do with the situation than it does the actual tones, pitches. You know, they have a lot of emotion behind the calls. Mm -hmm. So one time you can bugle with a lot of emotion. One time you can bugle with very little emotion. And that call, even though it sounds the same, means something completely different. So... People are afraid of making the wrong sounds or whatnot, and I just don't think you can. Yeah, but I think, you know, if you're, if you're sticking to a plan and generally in the right situation, yeah, not every elk sounds alike. No. They don't all have that perfect pitch, and so... No, absolutely. You're, if you generally know what you're doing, you have the ability to call in an elk. Obviously, more tools in your toolbox. And I was actually just talking with, with Corey and Jason about this. The more tools you have in your toolbox, obviously, like I think the uh, analogy I use, you can use ch- you can use channel locks for a whole lot of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It's going to be a lot easier if you have a, a ratchet and a and a good set of bits for exactly. it. So sockets, you know, sockets. Yeah. But, yeah, and uh, I think too many. I mean, obviously, in the past, um, a lot of elk died well before the the calls that we have today were even around, right? And and that was through bugling and even some of the original primo stuff. A lot, you know, they killed a lot of elk too. I, people try to be too perfect in it, and it doesn't. You don't have to be a, a stage caller or sound exactly like the elk to kill elk. You know, you really don't. Um, and there's been millions of elk that have been killed by calls that don't sound really anything even like an elk. Uh, so people shouldn't shouldn't. I mean, obviously, if you want to try, if you enjoy calling, and you want to try to become uh, as proficient in it as you can do that but you don't have to make the perfect sound you just have to know when to make the right sounds mm-hmm. and that's basically like what shannon was saying is feeding off the energy of what that elk is giving you if they are aggressive in their call back then you want to probably be aggressive in your call back to them you know you don't want to if you're if you're looking to challenge them in a fight then then build that you same emotion yep build that same emotion into your calls i think it's considering the story you're trying to you're like you're in right then it's right. okay what's what is the situation like? If 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 these were a couple of dudes in a bar, like what's what's going on? Am, aggressor, I, yeah. am I yelling at him? Am I trying to take his woman? Exactly. Like, am I am I trying to you know what? Think about if you think about it that way, and then do what's logical in that situation. It's not you're well, right. It's, well, it if you're in the bar environment, you can take your women home mm-hmm. or your woman home. But I'm in his house. In the house, mm-hmm. you're calling from oh, the street. You're calling from the streets. To, to get away from that bar environment. So when I when I charge into their bedroom, they got no choice. Yeah. They just have no choice. You now just calling calling to him from the street. And then you meet him at the. Then you call to him from the front door. Then he's leaving his bedroom, coming downstairs to meet you in the middle of the stairs. It's go. much different when when you do that, and that's that's one of the craziest things that I learned hunting with Shannon was finding them where they lay. And he's got this thing about. The middle part of the day is where he focuses his time, energy, and effort yeah, in terms we don't, of really we don't trying. Get up early. We don't, and if it is, it's only because we have to travel to get yeah. somewhere before we start really hunting. Because we've we just evolve our area and expand out further and further. And so some days it takes longer to get to where we're going to be the next day. Um, but the, probably eighty to ninety percent of the elk that we've killed have been somewhere after ten o'clock and before yeah. four o'clock. See, and that's, that's so different than, like, the traditional strategy you right. get for, especially, like, Rockies. Right, be up early, crack yep. of daylight. Hit that, hit that gray light and be waiting for them. And yep. Yeah, but I don't want them at the restaurant. I want yeah. them in the bedroom. 
Yeah, because you don't <laughs> want to follow them home before you finally then kill them. Because oh, you yeah. could you could tip them off, and they could end up driving to some someplace else. Right? That's exactly what happens. You know, you spend a lot of time trying to kill them right where they're the, they're at their most vulnerable yeah. spot, which is what they're going to do is defend well, they have their no home ground. Plan. There is no other place to escape to. That's where they go. So I play on that, you know. And they, he's going to defend it. This, this bull, being however old he is, is called that spot home. And he's, he's putting his life on the line. So we talked a little bit. Uh, you guys mentioned, you know, of course, first thing any hunter needs to learn is how to play the wind. I mean, right. it's important in every situation, whether you're sitting in a tree stand, whether you're chasing elk, whether you're out in the desert, is playing the wind. And... How does that differ at all as far as like how the wind behaves in in that thick, uh, in that thick tight stuff versus like you said the more open areas of of the Rockies? For sure, we don't have lots of elevation change, so we may have you know a thousand feet or fifteen hundred feet versus five thousand feet canyons. You know, yeah. So we don't get super big thermals. You know, there's not a ton of temperature change from the top of the ridge to the bottom. Um, so the prevailing wind is really what you got to pay attention to if there is any. Uh, and the wind swirls a lot because you have all them s- small, short little ridges. So the wind rolls over this one and it rolls down that one. Um, I want the wind in the right direction, generally. I, do I believe it's perfect when, from where I'm at to where he is? No. I think it's going to change multiple times on my way in. And quite honestly, I mean, it's puff, 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 checking that wind with, you know, every third, fourth, fifth step, whatever it may be. Or if I'm coming up to a ridge top, I'm checking it on the other side of the ridge. And from what I've learned is, is you cannot, you can't make a mistake with your, your, your scent. Once you can't they, trick their nose. They go from being a dominant animal in the woods to being a scared little, you know, prey animal when they smell human. So you, you can't risk the wind. Um, cover up sense, you know, I'm going to make some people upset. Co- cover up sense <laughs> do not work. You cannot cover up the human odor, your breath, uh, sweat, whatever it may be. They will pick that particle out amongst everything else out there, like a shark in water. Taste that one little drop of blood. Uh, so I don't mess around with the wind. I don't, I, I don't risk it. And what I'm risking if I try to push it too hard is the fact that this elk is no longer going to be where I found him. Tomorrow, who knows where he'll be. He's going to be uncomfortable in that new place he's at. So that may be the last time I ever get a chance to kill him. So if the wind's not right, a lot of times we will just not do it. We'll come back in another day that's got the wind in a little bit different conditions. That's an area where we've literally we've bedded down and waited the wind out, right. napped, middle part of the day. Not because we're lazy or anything, but just to wait until we get that wind right. And, you know, when you hunt the coast, you're really kind of, when Shannon says prevailing winds, you're, you're, you're playing on the jet stream more than anything because that's generally a west to east flow um, rolling through those mountains. And it's a lot less than what he said. You don't get as much up and down thermal action like you do in, in other areas, uh, especially as you get further to the east uh, into the more open country. It's just it's easier for the wind to blow through those areas. And So, uh People wanted to find you guys online, uh, find the videos. Can't. Nothing online. (laughs) Don't exist. Go away. We are ghosts. (laughs) Angryspikeproductions.com. It'll link you to our YouTube channel. Um, Subscribe. Watch it, man. I enjoy sharing it all. I I like seeing the comments, whether they're good or bad. (laughs) It's all fun. 
We so have. is it is YouTube the primary place? Uh, are you guys still putting out uh, it DVDs? No, well, it is still. now. Yeah, go ahead. It is now. Uh, YouTube's the primary place. So from the website, you can link to our socials. So we're on Instagram, Angry Spike Productions on there, at Angry Spike Productions. Facebook, you can just search Angry Spike, and we'll be the first ones that come up. Um, AngrySpike.com will also get you to us. But on our on our Facebook, I mean, on our, our website, we have a link to all the old DVDs that we loaded up as VHX. So they're on there as well. Um, for like I think what is it nine ninety nine you can get all of the oh, old DVDs. Yeah. It's cheap, you know. Um, it's we don't make any money on it. It's just that's just, just the, the easiest. It's there. just the yeah. easiest platform to get them out there because yeah. they are old. They are DVD style, so putting them on YouTube is a little harder. Um, but in our our YouTube channel is where all of the newer content has been coming out. Um, you know, and a lot of times we don't get great content because of the vegetation we hunt in, and so we don't have a ton of videos, uh, and we don't like to put anything out that's not at least enjoyable for the viewer to watch. So we don't have clips of just us hunting or driving around or <laughs> anything little. It's it, it, They're primarily start-to-finish elk hunts with kills at the end. So if people are, are interested in that, then they can definitely get on and check it out. There we go. I'll make sure I link to all that stuff on uh, the awesome. show notes page on the website. And, uh, you know, one thing, like I said earlier, this uh, this podcast is really geared towards folks like myself that may not have a background in hunting or are from the city or just may not have, feel like they've got access or just are too intimidated. And, you know, if somebody came up to you guys, you know, maybe you meet someone here at the expo and they're like, you know, I came like here we did last I'm, night at the bar. Weird. There we go. Yeah. It's so strange. <laughs> uh, but they said, you know, I, I came here because I want to get into hunting. But, you know, I look around. There's just there's so much to learn, so much to do. I, I, I don't even know where to start. It's super intimidating. What, uh, what words of wisdom or encouragement would you, would you guys give to that person? Enjoy the adventure. All right, this whole process of, of just, I mean, it's like no different going hiking. You're just doing it with a little bit more of a purpose. Um, success is defined in so many different ways. And just because you have an animal on the ground does not mean you had a very successful and rewarding trip. I mean, for a lot of people, that may cap it off. But for me, being out there, um, going to places that most people do not see, uh, it, to me, is what is rewarding for it. Taking people that haven't done it is an absolute blast. To see their face when they're in the bottom of this canyon, right, and they can do this. Like, you can go from there, clear up to there. You just got to put your put your mind to it. You just got to make it happen. You know, the, it, it's limitless. We were built as human beings for this. You know, this bottom line, we were less built for the city environment than we are for that outdoor environment. Yeah, the history of hunting is the, literally the history of mankind. Right. You know, without it, we probably don't exist. Um, I'd say purpose, you know, have, go into it with purpose. They have a reason why you're doing it, and it, it, whether it's to fill the freezer or to spend or to become more intimate in the outdoors, uh, to spend time away from the city environment, um, to see things that you've never seen in nature, like have a purpose and why you're doing what you're doing. Define your own success, and what is it? Is it a certain level of animal, or is it just a certain number of days in the field, or is it, um, again, filling, you know, filling your freezer with meat that you harvested that now you can take pride in eating um, have a reason on why you go out and do it and don't be afraid to ask questions i think a lot of people that are just getting started are afraid to ask questions because they think other people won't want to share their knowledge and you know here we are sharing shannon's sharing knowledge that literally people would they they have paid for to hear for free because 
seeing other people become successful based on all his time, effort, and energy is, and knowledge is, is rewarding. When people come up to you and tell you, like, man, I watched your guys' videos for years, and I was never successful until I saw you doing this, and then last year I killed the biggest bull I've ever, or, or my first bull I've ever killed. Like, the, you know, those are extremely rewarding yeah, stories to hear from people. You know, mm-hmm. you can't be more happy for them, regardless of if they use your technique or not. Um, but ask questions. We all started by learning generally from somebody else. You know, I didn't just walk out into nature and have this, you know, I do have an innate ability to survive in nature, but we're not in an environment now that we live in to do that. So yeah. I learned by watching and observing and asking questions. My dad, my dad's friends, my friends, all the people who I grew up with that hunted and collectively came up with the knowledge that I have today to be able to hunt. And then once you get to a certain point where you want to then challenge yourself more, then get involved with people who are willing to push you. And that's why I love hunting with Shannon because, you know, he pushes me to be a better hunter. Um, we push each other to get in the woods and go and, and charge and do do things like this and go to different states and hunt. And it's, it, makes it, it makes that whole process fun. It makes it become a lifestyle. And when, it, when it's a lifestyle, then it's maybe the most rewarding and, and uh, uh, enjoyable things that you will ever do. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's just... It's funny, you know, you talk about people, you know, people don't always want to want to share their secrets. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, my gosh, it's just going to be more people out in the woods. But, but you still have to go do it. Yeah. Creating, yeah. honestly, creating more hunters is going to be is nothing but beneficial, beneficial for us. Beneficial to everybody. Nothing but Even beneficial. Even for the elk. Mm-hmm. It's beneficial for the elk. Yep. Because yep. more conservation, the more focus you have on them, you know. More money that comes in from hunters, hunting licenses, fishing licenses, Pittman Robertson. Tags, I want my children's children's children to be able be able to experience the same things I do. Yep. You know. Yeah, there's an economic value to the the governments in our states and our government to have these animals around. Uh, with without the hunter, we're not here. They they don't they don't we don't have people protecting those animals. Uh, there is no predator control. You know, the, there is no managing of poaching and things like that. Those These animals just wouldn't be here. I mean, it's plain and simple fact. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for hopping on the show. Yeah. We really appreciate you sitting down, taking the time. Yeah. Very busy Saturday here. Lots, yeah. lots of announcements. Tons of drawings. Ned Peterson really needs to yeah. uh, do something. Yeah. Find Ned a booth. lost a hearing aid. Uh, gosh, Ned, get to it. Well, if he lost his hearing aid, how is he going to hear the announcement? Yeah. Oh. Um, because it's that loud. (laughs) Thank y'all for listening to Living Country in the City. Get show notes and check out the blog, product reviews, events, and more at livingcountryinthecity.com. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment.